Would you please join me as we pray? Oh God, you claim to be the living God. You claim to be the near God. You claim to be the gracious God. You claim to be the God of all our desires. Would you make yourself known to us, to each heart, to each person in this room? We trust you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, recently, I became aware of a conference called the Delight Conference. Has anybody ever heard of the Delight Conference before? Hey, I feel uh, hip. I feel, uh, I feel I'm actually ahead on something, right? Anyway, I'm not trying to rub it in your face. I'm, you know, I'm not even going to, I'm not even saying, I'm giving merit to the conference. I just learned about it, read a bit about it, and it was intriguing to me. It basically gathers together designers, uh, developers, marketers who are interested in giving their customers a great experience. And this is the logo on the website. Because companies that are loved win. Because companies that are loved win. The idea being as companies give customers a good experience, they'll profit from it. And what caught my attention was the way this conference, you know, put their finger on the place that delight plays in our lives. How important delight is to us. Now, the word itself is sort of an old word. You don't hear people using it much. Uh, we don't use it every day, but our lives are certainly driven by the goal of it every day. It may be the delight of a good meal. It may be the delight of meeting up with some friends you really love. It may be the delight of air conditioning blowing over you and a hot DC day. Uh, our days are very much about delight. And yet even as I say that, we understand all those things are vulnerable, right? Those things are vulnerable. Stomach flu can ruin the meal. Your friends can move away. The AC can bust. And of course, the great disruptor of delight, David mentions at the end of the psalm, death. Yet, it doesn't disrupt his delight. Why is that? Because David has founded his delight. He understands something, that it is God-given and it is secured by Jesus Christ. A delight which is God-given and secured by Jesus Christ whereby which our delight can actually be found of God. Now, for some of you here, that's a strange notion. If you're new into the idea of religion or Christian faith, the idea that God could actually be the fundamental part of your delight in life. For others of us here, we know it in theory, but in reality, our delight is more shaped by how our metro ride was or how our day went at work than it is what we have with God. That's just the way it is. We all have something to learn here. Now, as we come to Psalm 16, we're coming to what's called a messianic psalm. We're doing a short series on messianic psalms. Now, what does that mean? These are psalms that give us a window into the person of Jesus Christ, 
who the Bible uh, declares to be the Messiah of God, God's King. And if you go to the New Testament, the book of Acts, shortly after Jesus has died and suffered on the cross and risen from the dead, one of his apostles is preaching to thousands of people, and he takes a portion of this psalm and uses it in his sermon. It's basically talking about how King David, God's promise to King David that he would have a descendant on the throne forever is realized in Jesus. And here's what Peter says, the apostle. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And then Peter goes on to say, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now that's somewhat long quote. Here's what he's saying, that God gave David insight at some level that his delight was wrapped up and bound with a resurrected Messiah that delight was wrapped up with the resurrected Jesus Christ. And the same is true for you and me. And that's what I want us to give some attention to this evening. We'll consider the source of our delight, and we'll consider the choice that that delight requires. The source, and then the choice it requires. And we're going to begin this time with the second half of the psalm instead of the first half. Beginning in verse 7, David mentions three reasons for his delight, or three sources. The first is guidance. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. Now, last night, uh, my wife and daughter and I went to a restaurant. And we did what we often do when we go to restaurants, and probably what you do. We ask for some guidance from the waiter. We say, hey, you know, what's best in your menu? Is, is, is this too spicy? You know, we ask the questions like, is this fish fishy? Stuff like that. Which is the best? That sort of thing. You're asking your waiter for guidance so you can have a delightful meal. Same is really true about anything, right? You buy electronics, you make a purchase. We get guidance and counsel so we'll get the best experience, the best delight. Well, there is no one more equipped to be your counselor of delights than God. Now, I understand, again, for some of you, that's going to sound, I don't know if I buy that. It may be because you've asked God to give you something that you think will delight you, and he hasn't given it to you. But that's really just a matter of time. I mean, in time, he'll either give it to you if it will truly delight you, or you'll come back and see... You never really needed it to be delighted. A friend of ours recently said, I look back on my life and I see how many times God protected me from my first choices. And that actually my second choice and third choice later in life I saw was really my first choice, what I needed. So that might be some of the reason. Or it may be again that you're coming from outside of the Christian faith and just what you've heard about the Christian God is he is not a God of delights. He actually frowns when you're having a good time. But if you spend time reading the Bible, you see the opposite. For goodness sakes, the Bible begins with God creating a garden of delights, Eden, the Garden of Eden. And he gives it to the man and woman. 
This is the God who is sung about in Psalm 104, where they these people sing this about God. He causes the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. This is the God that gives those gifts, and you could probably resonate with some of that. This is the God that took Israel and liberated her from her bondage in Egypt so he might bring her into a promised land. And then we could consider the ministry of Jesus. Jesus healed and restored people so they could recover their delight. Jesus' first miracle was making wine at a wedding so the feast could go on. What I'm saying to you is there is no more accredited licensed counselor of delight than God. There is no one you could trust more to counsel you about your delights. And we need counsel because we have a propensity to like to chase after destructive delights. That's what David is hinting at when he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. He's actually referencing what God said to Eve about her sorrows multiplying after she had turned away from God. And God in this passage is basically the things that you and I look to that we hope will give us delight, but they're really empty and false. It may be for you a relationship that you long for that you think will take away the emptiness. That's become a God of delight to you. Or maybe a God of delight is your job performance, and now it's become the tyranny of perfectionism. Or maybe that your God was this summer the perfect vacation. Have you ever been on a trip with someone who is determined to have the most perfect vacation? It's miserable, right? Because the whole time they're just driving you to the next thing they have in their mind. I mean, you can look to your own life and see all these different ways that we chase after delight and find that what we get in return is sorrow. God would protect you from that. But we need his guidance and counsel. I mean, David needed it. David starts with a prayer by going, preserve me, O God. I know I have this propensity to look to these things. Preserve me, O God. And then he says, you know, I'm going to seek your counsel enough so at night when I'm lying on my bed, and that's when our delights and desires begin to surface, right? The things that we want or don't get, they come up at night and we're wrestling. He's praying my heart, I pray my heart would hear you and win out over the other things it's telling me. I pray your counsel would win. But that's only going to be happening if you're actually taking in God's counsel during the daylight hours. You know, your heart is telling you something at night. I mean, it's telling you the narrative of the world, the narrative of Washington, D.C. It is giving you a director's cut commentary on your desires and your delights. Is God getting a word in? That's what David prays. We need guidance. So he offers guidance. Next, the source of his delight is stability. Verse 8, he says, Because the Lord is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. When we were a little person and we were next to our grandparent or parent, we felt like I'm not going to be shaken. If you're in court and you have a good lawyer next to you, you feel like you're not going to be shaken. If you're walking down the streets with your friends and your crew, you feel like I'm not going to be shaken. If you have to make a presentation and your boss is on your side and they're next to you, you feel like I'm not going to be shaken. It matters who's next to your side. We know that. Are you aware of God next to your side? Do you have a sense of the presence of the living God 
right next to you. He is there stabilizing me. So when these other things fall, when I don't get the job, when the relationship goes south, when those things happen, I don't get shaken because I know he's by my side, the one that controls my delights. And then thirdly, David sees that his source is eternal pleasure. I mentioned a few minutes ago the great disruptor of our delights. He mentions death. Here he uses a poetic word for it, sheol, that means either the grave or the place of the wicked, where the wicked go. And in this context, the wicked are those that want the gifts that God gives, but not him. They want the perks and delights of God's world and earth, but are content to ignore him. And basically, they get what they want in the end. They are cut off. Sheol, or hell, is being cut off from the presence of God, from the Lord of delights. And the book of Jeremiah says to us that God takes no pleasure or delight in the death of the wicked. Instead, he says, turn from your way, and then poses this question, why would you die? Why would you die when you can live? It's a question every one of us here has to wrestle with. Every one of us here will have to answer that question. And to show his commitment to that question being legit, he does something that none of us would have ever dreamed or strategized. He sends his delight, his beloved son, to come and stand in our place, take our shame, suffer, die, and rise. He sends his son to drink the cup of wrath so you and I can drink from the river of delights. The son is crucified on a tree of death so you and I can eat from the tree of life. This is what God has provided so that we might know true delight. And when that becomes part of your story, when you begin to understand that and take that in, you can then say what the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is actually gain. Because death is no longer, no longer a passageway to the end of your delight or the fears of your delight. You realize this life is just the appetizer. I mean, if this life is the whole thing, it ain't much. I mean, if you're a privileged person to live at a certain level of wealth and have really good health and your, your family stayed intact, I promise you, you are in a very small percentage. If you've come up and you're living under the oppression of poverty, or racism, or a broken family, an addiction. This life could never satisfy you. Come on. Logic just demands that we would hunger for something more. Death is not the end of the light. In, in fact, we get to taste what David says, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What a beautiful image. It's nothing short than the, new, the vision of the new heavens and new earth, the Garden of Eden on steroids, what God always planned for his beloved, where the earth is this abundant thing, the feast, the playground. There's all these wonderful images that the Bible gives us. And you understand, if you look at the psalm, David begins as a refugee, taking refuge in God. He ends with as an inheritor of all. And the same is true for everyone that trusts in Christ. You might be a refugee in this life. You become an inheritor in the next. 
And it begins now as we're on the path of life, he says. And here's the thing. When you come to see that, even the paradise in the Eden isn't enough because you've tasted of something greater, his delight in you. Now, you can have everything in the world, but if the person you think most about and you love most about doesn't delight in you, it means nothing. It means nothing. I've told the story once before about the great trumpet jazz player Bix Beiderbach. And uh, he was, you know, famous, but his dad never uh, really blessed him in that vocation. His dad never was for that. And he got wrapped up, Bix Beiderbach, in alcohol, his life destroying away. And he, he uh, would send his dad his albums. And after his dad died, they went to clean out the house, and he saw all of the albums sitting there. None of them had been open. Never knew the delight of his father. You know that that person delighting you means everything. What does it mean to know that God delights in you in that way? One of God's pet names for his people, the book of Isaiah, one of his pet names is, my delight is in her. My delight is in her. And when you become united to Jesus Christ, that is God's disposition toward you. But hey, we have a choice in the matter. Let's move on to this last point, the choice of delight. I mean, sometimes we don't realize that we choose what we delight in. I mean, you know, you walk through the buffet, you'll say, oh, the cheesecake, I won't have that, I will have that. I mean, you can choose life or you can choose death. You can choose to delight yourself in things that will give you life or basically will erode you away. You can choose true pleasure or empty pleasure. So how do we get there? I want to suggest three things that we find in this choice of delight. One is a conviction of delight. David says, I have set the Lord always before me. Now, whatever we set before our eyes is the thing that we gaze upon and we turn over in our mind, and it becomes the object of our delight. Now, maybe, you know, you purchased something recently that you had been researching for a couple months. You were really looking forward to it. And if you looked at it on the, you know, you searched around, and then you found what you were looking for, and then you did that thing where you can, you know, hit the zoom in, and it makes it nice and big, and then you can do the 360, you know, dance for me object. I want to, you know, I want to see your beauty. You know, you're looking from the top, you're looking from the bottom, look at that. You know, it's in your mind, right? It becomes the object of your delight. You turn it over. Well, you and I are called to do that with God. We're called to do it with God. We are to take his excellencies and his beauties and learn to delight in them. Let me give you some examples. This comes from Psalm 86. There is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. So what is the psalmist doing there? He's basically turning over the acts of God that he might delight in them. I mean, it might be some of the things I mentioned, the daily things that God gives all of us. You take in one of these, you know, days in August where it's actually like 73 degrees in D.C. I mean, that's supernatural, right? That happens. Instead of just going, yeah, nice day, you're able to work your way to the giver. Because that sense of thankfulness you have is coming from somewhere. You're not just like saying it into the cosmos, right? I'm thankful for this day. You're speaking to somebody. 
You make it all the way up to him and you go, you know, I celebrate your acts in my life, your good acts, the times that you've delivered me, the times that you've come close with your forgiveness. You're turning over the excellencies of his work. Or maybe it's his very person. The Apostle John, when he was given his revelation, said that he saw one on a throne. He sat there and he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. You know what he was saying? I saw God as a jewel. I saw God as a beautiful jewel before my eyes. He was breathtaking. The book of Hebrews would say that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. He shines to me. You know that you've begun to delight in God when that stuff begins to connect, when you can turn over his attributes and who he is. But you got to do more than set God before you. David doesn't just set him. He states and declares it. He says, where are we? Where are we? Oh, when he says, uh, I have no good apart from you. He declares it. You know, our words carry us forward. It's one thing to say, hey, we're going to get married. It's another thing to stand up and take your vows. It's one thing to say, hey, I got elected to this position or office. It's another thing to stand up and take the oath. When you declare something, it pushes you forward in your conviction. And so the people that know God need to do that as well. In your prayers, being able to say, I have no good beside you. I have no life beside you. Like the Apostle Peter said to Jesus, where are we going to go for words of eternal life? What do you speak to yourself? What do you preach to yourself? As our preacher last night reminded us, or last week rather. So he has a conviction of delight. Second of, all, second of all, he has a community of delight. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, and whom is all my delight. Now that word saints or holy one typically refers to angels. But because you see that little qualifier in the land, he's referring to those fellow followers of the Lord. And he's saying... My greatest delight is found in the company of the godly. The company of the godly. And I know for some of us that might be a stretch. Because maybe what you've experienced in the church is the company of the self-righteous. <laughs> and you're like, well, I, I don't want to be with that company. <laughs> right? The company of those that are basically just sort of circling the wagons in and of themselves. That's not the community that he's talking about. That's not the community of faith. Nor is he saying that God's people aren't supposed to love people that don't share their beliefs or share their lifestyle. If the Bible's clear anything, the second, right, love, love your neighbor, love thine enemy. Of course we're called to love. The question is this. This is what he's getting at. Who is your greatest delight? Is it the beautiful? Is it the people that have names in Washington? Is it the super-talented person? Is it the omnicompetent person? Who is the person that you want to be around, that you delight in? Is it someone just of your own race or class? Because David is saying the ones that he delights in are the ones that chiefly delight in God. They're the humble they're the ones that are hungry and thirsty for God. They're the repentant. They're those that are bold in their witness, that aren't ashamed of their faith. 
Who do you desire to be in the company of is this question. That's what he's putting before us. And I give you that to think about. And lastly, he talks about the contentment of his delight. There's two images we're given here. One is that of when Israel crossed into the promised land and each tribe was given an allotment, a plot. The other is Levite priests did not get that. The priestly class, actually, God said, I'm going to be your portion. I'm going to be the one that fulfills you. And they were, in a sense, models and examples because the New Testament says that all believers in Christ are a kingdom of priests, so that he would be their chief portion. So David is basically saying here that as I look at, you know, the inheritance of land that you've given me, when I look at what you've given me to take as my food of my soul, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Someone that has contentment can look at their life Whatever state it's in, whether it's in a season of reaping, whether it's in a season where there isn't much of a harvest, they can look at their life and they can say, the boundary lines have fallen for me in a pleasant place. How can they say that? Well, they can say it because God is their capital D delight, and all the other stuff is the small D delight. They've come to understand that basically I have him and all the other stuff is really just extras. It's going to come and go. The friends, unfortunately, are going to come and go. The health is going to come and go. The finances are going to come and go. But my boundary lines have fallen in a pleasant place because I know him. They know something of what the Apostle Paul said. I count it a loss. I count everything a loss against the surpassing glory of knowing you. Have you known God in such a way that you would not be content in this life if you had all the other stuff, but you didn't have him? And what we do is we end with this, you know, really mantra of the Bible, which basically is a sum of what it means to live for God. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart as we begin to see him as our capital D delight, our desires begin to shape and shake out differently. We find that we live in a different way. And so I want to ask you the question to think on this week. Think on today. Think hard about it because it's a matter of life and death. What is your delight? What is the delight of your soul? Let's pray. God, we do pray. Well, we thank you first that you delight in your people. We pray that you would help us to get things right. We pray that you would help us to demote the small d and raise up the capital D in you, in Christ's name. Amen.